Park. Let's welcome Mark as he comes to bring the word. But uh, no pressure. It's going to completely change your life, but no pressure on me. Seriously, no pressure. Um, I got really excited about this series because we talked about what we were going to teach on next, and it was, John said, I get this word from the Lord, restoration. And it really struck me deeply because for the last three to four months, I can't get away from this one sentence. And you all know this. This is probably the most famous psalm of all. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores, refreshes my soul. And I could not get off that expression, refreshes, restores my soul. It just kept coming back over and over and over again. And I'm not exaggerating. It's become my prayer for everybody. Anyone that, that I pray for, whether it's physical, like fighting against cancer, uh, chronic illnesses, as well as praying for that, there's always this aspect of God restore her soul, restore his soul. And I think it's one of the most significant things we can ask of the Lord. And when he does it, it's transformational. It's a work of God. It's not something we conjure up. It's a profound, deep thing. So the Lord is my shepherd. He's my caregiver. He's the one that cares for me. It's his responsibility. He is my shepherd. I'm not my shepherd. He is my shepherd. Therefore, because he, in his power and love, is my shepherd, I, I am going to lack for nothing that I need. I may lack for things that I want. Because the only one that really knows the difference between your needs and your wants is the Lord. You honestly don't know the difference between your needs and your wants. Amen. We interpret needs with the word want. He makes me, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And we're going to get to this, why it matters that he makes us do that. Frankly, we won't do it for ourselves. It's not in our nature to be still or to lie down or to rest. It's in our nature to struggle. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores, he restores my soul. So when we talk about restoring the soul, there's really two questions that come to mind. The first one is, what does it mean to restore? What do you mean? Lord, what are you talking about? What is it that you're restoring? How, how are you doing this? What does it mean? And the second one is, what is my soul? I know this seems a little elementary, but there really are two questions. What does it mean to restore, and what is my soul? What's going to get touched here? What's going to get fixed? For question number one, what does it mean to restore? If you were here last week, John did a really good job of explaining it. I'm just going to hit the high point. The word refresh used here comes from the root word to return. Isn't that interesting? So wherever there's a refreshing or a restoration, there is a return to something. And in the biblical context, it means taking you back to the best of what once was taking you back to the best of what once was. And the best of what once was, for every one of us, sounds crazy, but the best of what once was for every one of us was 
shortly after our birth, where, when we were innocent. We were completely without the knowledge of failure, shame, doubt, fear. We were simply resting in mother's arms. We were in a state of peace. The word is sons in law is innocence. We lived in a state of innocence. That's the best of what once was. And life has a way of seeing to it that that was a, nothing but a forgotten, lost memory, short-lived reality. But God is in the business of restoring that. But it's more than that. It doesn't just mean taking you back to a state of innocence, which he does. In the Bible, as John pointed out last week, when he restores you biblically, he doesn't take you back to the best of once was. He, it's better than what once. Yeah. It's better than the best of what Amen. was. And uh, being a well-adjusted gender kind of guy, deeply in touch with my femininity as well as my masculinity, living in the almost perfect metro guy reality here, I'm so well-adjusted, I focus on two kinds of TV shows. Two. Car restorations and home and garden house restorations. And football. Yeah, there's a dark side of me that really likes all that. It, it's, probably, it's probably a metaphor for spiritual warfare. But you got car restoration shows and you get house restoration shows. And have you noticed that in both those shows, if you're, if you're watching the car show or the house show, it doesn't matter, the same thing happens. I want this house restored to the historic property that it once was. It has to have all the perfect charm. And the, what's the word? Let me pray for you, my brother. You need help. The character, right? It's get, and the, oh, this house has character. What they really mean is it's beat up and dumpy and full of dirt. This house has character. And, you know, the ultimate thing you can find for a car restoration is a barn find. This is a car so destroyed, you're not sure if it's a barn or a car. But it's found in a, in a, in a barn. So they all want the vintage. They all want it to, res to be restored to what it once was. But can I have that 63 split window Corvette with, yeah, split window, silver? Silver. With red interior. Yeah. Don't covet your neighbor's car, Jerry. It's wrong. <laughs> or, your, or your truck. You all want it to be restored to what it once was when it came off the assembly line, but nagging in the back of your mind is, what if I could have new brakes? What if I could have a new suspension system? What if this thing would handle like a modern car, but have all the beauty of the vintage car? Wouldn't that be the best thing you could do? And they, they, they call it a resto mod. And here's what's interesting. Used to be 10... 15 years ago in the car business, uh, restorations, you wanted it to be perfectly vintage, not anymore. Perfectly vintage Corvette like that will go from about $150,000. But if you put a brand new engine in it and a new chassis and new brakes and everything else, modern stuff, 
you're looking at $300,000, $400,000. So you can actually take the vintage thing and you can make it better than it once was. Same with the house. I want all the charm, but I do want the, the new appliances and I do want the smart home and I do want and I do want it, but, but it's got to look like the old thing, but it's got to be even better. And that's what we all want. And that's the business that God is in. It's not just taking you back to your innocence. It's making it a whole lot better than it once was. That's his goal. So that's the first question. What do we mean by restore? Question two, what's the soul? He restores my soul. What's your soul? Well, when the Bible talks about the soul, he's talking about several things. God's talking about our deepest desires, our emotional world, our passions, and our thoughts. It encompasses all of that and our will. Your deepest desires, your deepest fears, your emotions, your passions, and your thoughts. It's what we would call today your heart. And in fact, the Bible calls it your heart. That part of our personality, at the deepest level of our identity, where all our dreams live, and our deepest desires, that's what God's going to restore. That's where he starts his restoration. It's about your inner being. It's where your sense of self-worth and sense of well-being comes from. You can't go deeper than this. This is the core of who you are. And we're going to get into how this restoration takes place. But last week, John told a story of a restoration in his life with someone very close to him who committed suicide and uh, how crushing and completely wounding that was and how God had to get him through that. And I'm going to share one of mine, which is the darkest time of my life and how that was transformed. Before we do that, we need to understand something about restoration, and this is really, really important. Restoration happens one of two ways. It is either an event or it is a process. You with me? And you know we all want number one, right? Like, come on, Lord, just do it right now. Give me, hit me with 100% of what you can do to restore my soul, and I want it done by this afternoon. And I want it to happen in church with glory balls dropping through the ceiling and hitting me. I want it to be a lot like drugs, but with no side effects. So it's an event or it's a process. And yes, we want it to be an event, but most of the time it's a process. But let's deal with the event first. This is my event story. Uh, this is 25, 30 years ago. I was a pastor of a large, thriving, uh, Holy Spirit-filled church. We'd been on the national news. We were recognized in the city. We were doing really revolutionary and unusual things. It was a East End bar down in the worst side of town. And we went to the owner of the bar and said, we'd like to be chaplains for your bar. And he said, what's that mean? And he said, we're, on, we're, we're available for people that are in trouble. We served turkey dinners there. 
uh, our band played uh, on their stage, and we had worship nights, and um, it was, I mean, it was like National News showed up to film it. We were riding the crest of a real serious move of God. My then wife left, and I'm still in ministry. She's gone. There's a sense of brokenness and shame that's really deep. Shelley and I get married sometime later. My mother dies, and within a few months, we go into the worst church split that I can possibly imagine. Our church was a community of love like you've never seen. And when it breaks up amongst the leadership, the people feel like they're in the middle of a divorce watching mom and dad, and they run because they don't want to be part of something like that. Nobody does. When you're a prominent church and something like this happens, it's news for everybody, and you're the subject of gossip all over the city. And I go to pastor's meetings, and you can tell in people's faces how they avoid you and are thinking. You, you can see in their face the doubt what's true and what isn't true. They've heard all sorts of things because that's what always happens. Gossip. A machine gets wound up and poof, no stopping it. So my mother died. We had the church split. Shelley got really sick, really sick. She's still suffering with it today, all coming out of that church split. And I saw myself as severely damaged goods. In any pastor's meeting I went to, that was reflected in people's faces. And I went into a severe depression. And I've told you this before, but during that time I prayed daily f to die. I said, I know it's a sin to kill myself. I get that, Lord. So would you please arrange a car accident so I can be done with this? I was unbelievably broken. And the Lord spoke to Shelley and I and said, don't defend yourself. Don't make any comments on anything to do with this situation. So we didn't. So it, <laughs> the machine just kept cranking things out, none of which I'm going to deny or comment on. And it was just, it's the worst period of my life. So a pastor's meeting was called. There was a, a prophet coming from the U.S. We were up in Canada at the time. Prophet coming from the U.S. that everybody wanted to hear. This guy was like, Big time. So Shelley and I went to this meeting. There was about 50, about 50 pastors there. It was a luncheon thing. And we're sitting at our table all by ourselves. <laughs> table for six, two people sitting at it. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's nothing compared to everything else. In fact, when you're in that kind of emotional state, you'd really rather be alone. Because you're looking into the faces of people and you can only guess what they're thinking. And it's probably worse than what you're guessing they're thinking. So 
we're having lunch and the prophetic guy keeps looking over at us and he's kind of staring at us and I'm thinking this is creepy (laughs) this is genuinely creepy so he gets up to address these pastors and he says uh, before I speak I have something I need to do and he says you two stand up so we stand up and I'm thinking, oh God, here we go. He's he's gonna he's gonna talk about my sin in front of all these people. He's gonna talk about my addiction to the NFL. <laughs> he's gonna show all my character flaws, and they already know all my character flaws, probably, but they don't know about the addiction to the NFL. So I'm thinking this is gonna be really bad. And this is what he said. These two have been slandered by many, but it's not true. This is a man of God. He had a chance to leave and go to California to minister. My mentor called us up in the middle of this and said, come down and join our church. And Shelly and I prayed, and the Lord said, your work's not done here yet. You'll go someday. But your work's not done here. So we said no. But we didn't tell anybody about this. This was just between the two of us. He had a chance to leave and go to California to minister, but they chose to stay and serve God here, even in the midst of their suffering. This guy knew nothing about us. Nothing. There's no way he could have known about that. And he went on and spoke all these good things about us and told us how God was going to use us in the city, which happened. And uh, in that moment of hearing him speak these words from God, a shame was lifted off and hope was restored. Wait, it gets a lot better. It gets a lot better. This is the good part. He came to me afterwards and he said... uh, I want to speak at your church this Sunday. And, I, and this is exactly what I said to him. I said, after what you just did for Shelly and I, you can have my church. <laughs> I said, you can, you can do anything you want. And he said, no, I want to come and speak at your church on Sunday. I said, okay. Well, this, is, this guy's big time, right? He, like, he, he's the reason we're all there. So the word spreads, he's speaking at Mark and Shelley's church on Sunday. Goes out all over the place. You know, gossip, like, the guy's going to be at that, that. We could go hear him at Mark's church. So we go to church on Sunday. We're... We're a tenth the size of what we were before the split. We're a little bunch of sweet people putting up with a completely broken pastor out of their own faithfulness. So this guy comes to preach and the room's full. Like, where are all these people coming from? They're coming to hear him. And in the crowd of people coming to hear him are, this is two, at least two years, maybe two and a half years after the split of Pain and survival. And I'm looking around at all these people, and there's a whole bunch of people that used to go to that church. 
just to go to, used to go to our church. I haven't seen him in two years. They're coming to hear this guy. But I don't tell him anything about that. He's just going to do his message. So he gets up to do his message. We're in the, about the fourth row, Shelley and I, sitting on the aisle. And uh, he starts his message, and then he, he just pauses and goes, oh, there's something we need to do right now. He says, you two, stand up. Oh, not again. Shelly <laughs> and I stand up. This is what he said. There's a whole lot of people here this morning. You haven't been here for a long time. He said, you left this church, but you left for the wrong reasons, believing the wrong things. Before you go this afternoon, you need to apologize to these two <laughs> because the man and woman of God... Then he went on with his message. At the end of the service, there was a lineup of people waiting to apologize to us. And they did. And our relationships were restored. And they, many of them came back and stayed. Out of the brokenness that was that experience, God birthed in us a passion for unity in the city. And he started to use us. One of the things at that men's luncheon, at the pastor's luncheon, that the prophet said, he said, uh, you're going to receive a phone call in the next 10 days from someone in this, from a pastor in this city who really needs you and you're going to be influential in his life. And can imagine me like with my reputation, that's not going to happen. Guy called a week later. He was one of the principal leaders in the city. Said, can you come to my office and we can talk? And I thought, oh, this is what the prophet said. So I went, he poured out his heart. He poured out his heart and we became close friends. And when God started a move of unity in our city, our little church, was catalytic. And I'm not using that word. That's the word that other pastors in the city said about us. That we were catalytic to what God did in the city, and it was an amazing thing to see. Just amazing. Our souls were restored. Hope and dignity and belonging, influence, all the things that we'd lost. But it was better now because the suffering had, in many ways, purified our hearts. That's what you said in pre-service prayer. It isn't about us. It's about him. He gets the glory. We get to help. It was incredible, Rick. I mean, it was like, it was amazing. It was restoration. It was an event. Now let's talk about the process. Because that's where most of us live. Most of the time we live in the process. We don't live in the event. So we have to understand the process. How to, how to navigate it. How to, what's our part in it? Everything God does is sovereignly powerful. It's got his fingerprints all over it. But his fingerprints are on our lives. And we have a role to play in all that. How does it work? 
Well, here's the process as described by Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters, and he restores my soul. So when I read these words, makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside quiet waters, what are the words that come to your mind that express the heart of what's going on in this imagery, these images? Still waters, lying down in green pastures. What are the words that come to your mind? Hmm? Peace, Peace. rest, quietness, calm, refresh, Harmony, there's, just, there's one that you haven't said yet. How about this one? Stillness. 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 <laughs> stillness. <laughs> stillness. Quietness, rest, stillness. Well, here's what's interesting. Stillness and quietness are major themes in the Bible. Major themes. Let's look at some of them. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. So somehow there's a relationship between stillness and relationship with God. Between stillness and knowing God. Isn't that interesting? And in that one, the B is in the imperative. It means I'm giving you a command, not a suggestion. Right? Like he could have said, the psalmist could have said, you know, you'll discover that sometimes when you're still, you'll know God. It's, and I suggest it to you. He's not doing that. He's saying, be still. Like, make the choice and be still. And you will end up knowing God. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Don't fret when people succeed in their ways and when wickedness triumphs. Be still and wait patiently for Him and don't fret. This sounds like the times we're living in, doesn't it? It does to me. How about this one? In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. How about this one? And this is the one I uh, return to all the time. My heart is not proud, Lord. And my eyes are not haughty. And I don't concern myself with great matters or things that are too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul, my soul, my emotions, my thoughts. I've stilled and quieted my soul like a well-fed child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. We're going to return to that one in a minute. But here's one I really like. 
Moses answered the people. Now, let's, let's just put the verse in context. They've left Egypt. They're running away from the Egyptians. Pharaoh has changed his mind for the umpteenth time and sent out his army to capture them and bring them back. And they're at the Red Sea. They've run out of land, and now they're looking at water, and there is no escape. You've got the sea in one side of you, and you've got those guys coming from the other side. And it's only a matter of a few hours, and this thing is over. And he doesn't know what to do. And the people are freaking out. And Moses goes to the Lord and says, what am I going to do? And the Lord says, don't be afraid. If anyone other than God said that to you, are you serious? You don't want me to be afraid right now when everything is about to end? But it's God saying it. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to do everything you can in your own power to fix it. You need only to get some more self-help books. You need only to be still. These Egyptians you see today, you are never going to see again. You need only to watch what I do and be still. Right? You see the pattern? See what he's saying? Okay, so here's the question. All of us have Egyptians in our life. Not talking about nation. I'm talking about, this is a metaphor, okay? Don't, don't accuse me of some sort of racist thing going on here because it's not. It's a metaphor. Those problems, those situations, those lies, those negative emotions and thoughts that steal your peace and joy, those are your Egyptians. They're the things that corrode your soul. They're the things that take the 63 split window Corvette and turn it into a mess. They're the things that wreck the house, so it needs to be restored. They're the things that are ruining your life. Most of the time, it's not the circumstances that, of your life that are ruining your life. It's not usually the bad things that are ruining your life. It's how you're reacting to the bad things that's ruining your life. When the, the bad things aren't that bad if you have peace in the middle of it. But if you don't have peace, even a good vacation is not a good vacation, is it? And something can go wrong and the sewer system can back up on your house that you rented in Hawaii. Oh God, oh God, oh God, what have I done that the sewage system is backing up? That's an Egyptian. But those are circumstances. It's how you feel about it and how you respond to it. It's the effect upon your soul that determines your sense of well-being or not. So the question we have to ask is, what are your Egyptians? What are the thoughts, the emotions, the situations that keep you awake at night that are corroding your heart, corroding your peace, stealing your joy? 
Now, when we're in that state, for some human reason, God is the last person we want to turn to for help. So we decide to anesthetize those emotions with temporary distractions. And you know those temporary distractions work for a little while, and then guess what? They turn into Egyptians. The things we turn to for temporary anesthetic of the pain that we're feeling, the emptiness, the corrosion of our souls, we turn to all sorts of things and they work for a little while and pretty soon they transform into another Egyptian. Now we have a problem on top of a problem. The solution to the problem became another problem. And on and on it goes. You can't heal your own soul. Hello? You can't heal your own soul. It can't be done. Only God can heal your soul. But you have a part to play in it. Always. We always have a part to play in it. What does it have to do with? It has to do with ruthlessly creating and protecting a time of encounter with God in stillness. Ruthlessly creating and protecting a time of encounter with God in stillness. Your part is to show up, be still, and let him restore your soul. The only problems in your soul he will fix are the ones you bring to him. He will not violate your sanctity by trying to fix something you don't want fixed. Which means it requires a level of self-awareness and honesty that says... I have real serious problems in my soul and I can't fix them myself. But if I bring them to him and confess to him what I'm going through and get real with him and honest in a place of stillness, he now has access to touching parts of me. He couldn't, he could have, but it would have been violating you. He won't violate your sanctity. He won't. That's the wonderful thing about him. It's frustrating because you just want him to get on with the job. He can only heal what we're honest with. And the depth of the healing goes to the depth of our honesty with him. It's proportional. He only fixes the things we bring to him. So you're ready to do some ministry? You're ready to do some encounter with God stuff? Are you okay with that? Yeah. I mean, isn't that what we're here for? No, it's not just information, it's transformation. Yeah. It's the application of information that makes for transformation. Changing lives. That's, that's the business we're in. Changing lives. So, let's close our eyes. And we're going to ask ourselves a question. And we'll ask God to help us with the answer to the question. Holy Spirit, we love you. We think you're interesting. We think you're amazing. We think you're fascinating. Sometimes you scare us. But that's only because you're so amazing. You touch us in, in just the best ways. You bring the love of the Father, the revelation of Jesus. You bring all these things to us. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to be here. Manifest your presence right now for each one of us in truth and love. Truth and love, Holy Spirit.
What are the negative thoughts, beliefs, emotions or circumstances that are damaging your soul today? What's the fear you can't get free of? What's the lie you keep hearing? What's the negative emotion that just keeps coming back? If you got in touch with something, just put your hand up quickly for a moment. Okay. Now admit it to God. Sounds simple, but just say, Lord, this is this is what I'm feeling. This is this is my world. This is what I can't control. Tell him how you feel. Just right now, just tell him how you feel. Honestly. Holy Spirit, what do you want to say about that? Holy Spirit, what do you want to do right now for me? How do you want to be present for me right now? What do you want to say? How do you want to touch my soul, my mind, my emotions, my fears, my passions? What do you want to do? What do you want to say? How are you here for me right now, Holy Spirit? How are you here for me right now? What do you want to be for me right now? What do you want to say to me right now? My heart isn't proud, Lord, and my eyes aren't haughty. And I'm not concerning myself with great matters or things beyond my understanding. But I'm choosing right now, Father, to quiet my heart, speak peace to my emotions and my fevered mind. I've stilled and quieted my soul just like a baby resting in the arms of its mother. Like a well-fed child is my soul within me.
What do you want to say to me, Lord? What do you want to do? Fear of failure. We're speaking to the fear of failure right now. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we speak to this fear of failure. failure. Say, shut up and be gone. Shut up and be gone. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fear of being alone. There's some single people here right now and you have a fear for your future of being alone. And the Lord says, you'll never be alone because I'm with you. The Lord says, trust me with your future. He says, give me your future right now. Hand me your future. And I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to protect your future. You don't have to anymore. Now we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we break addictions. Number of addictions. We come against the addiction of pornography in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come against the addiction of horror movies in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Violence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We break the power of these things over us right now. Spirit of self-hate. As people here, you think the worst things about yourself and you think it routinely over and over and over again. You dwell on the things you hate about yourself. It's a spirit. It's evil. It isn't you. These thoughts you're thinking about yourself, they didn't come from you. They came from somewhere else. We come against that spirit of self-hate in the all-powerful authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shut up and be gone. Shut up and be gone. Now rise up and take authority over the lies that speak to your soul and say, I'm not listening to this anything anymore. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I rebuke this thought. I identify it as not from God, not from me. It's from the enemy. It has no place in my mind. You rebuke that thought and you command it to leave your presence right now. Shut up and be gone. I am not entertaining that thought anymore. Be gone from my mind and be gone from my presence in the all-powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. wife I've seen him in the process and I've seen him through the events and um, he really 
has taught a lot of people the process and and you've learned it from someone else and so for everybody here when they heard the word stillness and a flip went in your stomachs like i could never be still or i can never still my mind or how do i do this when i'm not here there really are ways there's some things we can do to learn how to be and i encourage you in your small groups there's there's nothing more important than hearing his voice there's nothing more important than him replacing the lies that run our lives we don't even know they're running our lives and he's got the truth but he's waiting for us like mark said in connect group he 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 holds back and waits for our invitation and part of our invitation is being still and we at the gathering place want to help everybody we can to hear his loving voice if some of you guys want to do that shelly's available she's a really good coach in this material she stole my material she's yeah i know but it hurts all the same right? 